welcome to the Toasted Sister podcast. I'm Andy Murphy. In the native food movement, you hear the term food sovereignty a lot. And you could say the native food movement is about food sovereignty. But what is it? And why is it so important to Native American food? To get an answer, I talked with Dr. Elizabeth Hoover. She's a Manning Assistant Professor of American and Ethnic Studies at Brown University. She's also Mohawk and Mi'kmaq. Can you tell me what the definition of food sovereignty is? Just like a big, broad uh, definition of food sovereignty? So that sounds like something that should be real easy to just put out a definition, right? But that's actually been a big focus of my work is getting people to kind of give me their notions and ideas of what is food sovereignty, what that looks like, and what constitutes that. So the the kind of academic-sounding definitions that organizations like La Vea Campesina, who really kind of first coined this term in the mid-90s, and then they had a series of forums that brought together people from all over the world and that identified as these small-scale farmers to talk about what this means. And at a, a... you know, gathering in Mali in 2007, the definition they came up with was the right of people to a healthy and culturally appropriate food produced through ecologically sound and sustainable methods and their right to define their own food and agricultural systems. So the short definition is that, you know, it's the right of peoples to have sufficient, healthy, culturally appropriate food. You know, so it's it's different from food security that people often see as do you have access to enough calories? And so if somebody's dropping off food boxes to you, you might be food secure in the sense that you're getting enough calories, but is the type of culturally appropriate food that you want? You know, do you have control over where that food's coming from and how it's coming into your house? So part of what my work has been about is traveling around to different native communities, different farming and gardening food projects, and asking people, how do you define food sovereignty? You know, so for people who are on the ground working on these issues, what does that mean to them? And so I've been kind of compiling all the different definitions that people have come up with around that. And let's take it back a little bit. Um, food sovereignty seems like it's maybe a new uh, thing, a new issue we're having to uh, think about today. We were sovereign uh, a long time ago. Um, how has our, our, our food systems changed to where now you're here, you know, going around getting everybody's definition of food sovereignty? I'm pretty sure, you know, a long time ago we didn't focus on food sovereignty because, you know, we were f- sovereign. Yeah, if you were a sovereign nation, you were food sovereign, right? Mm -hmm. And so there are a number of different factors over the years that have been part of the sort of settler colonial process that is the formation of the U.S. that has led to tribes becoming less food sovereign. So if you think about scorched earth battle tactics that have been used, you know, first by the French against the Haudenosaunee, for example, in the the 17th century, um, and then you think of Sullivan's campaign during the, you know, the, the General George Washington sent out that essentially just burned millions of acres of corn and people's food supplies and orchards and, you know, corns and beans and squash and melons and anything that was growing. And the idea was, how do you make indigenous people reliant on the government for foodstuffs? Or if you think of, you know, for your own nation during the long walk, 
that those Navajo people that refused to relocate, you know, Kit Carson and his men went and burned their sheep and burned their fields and made sure that they didn't have access to their foods. So, you, you know, so it kind of starts with these scorched earth battle tactics. You think about tribes that were relocated. So the you know tribes that were taken out of the southeast and marched on the Trail of Tears off to Oklahoma, when you're suddenly removed from the ecosystem and the climate that you're used to and then sent to a whole different place, you know, your seeds might not grow there. You might not be familiar with those plants and animals that are there. And that's going to interrupt your ability to be able to feed yourself. And then during the late 1800s, during the allotment era, you know, you have the, the Dawes Act in 1887 where reservation land bases are shrunk even further than they had been. You have the privatization of land and then you have the quote unquote leftover land gets given to settlers and people lose their allotment to settlers. And it's a lot harder to be food sovereign when you have a much smaller land base. And then you think about the boarding school eras. And so people's children who were taken out of their homes and out of communities and sent off to boarding schools, you develop a much different relationship with food than you would have home with your family. So now you have kids that aren't being fed enough that are, you know, kind of crowded around these tables and all of a sudden being fed a lot of bread and butter, for example, that they wouldn't have been eating at home. And so people's, you know, the types of foods that they're eating changes and your habits and the ethos around food changes. So you're scrambling, you know, in these schools to make sure that you're getting enough food before somebody else takes it. And people have talked about how their relatives came home from boarding schools with a very different relationship to food. In the, the Southwest, you have you know access to water changes. And so people went from having the skills and the knowledge around dry land farming and being able to, I've always been really impressed with the way that, you know, coming from the Northeast where we have lots of water and then, you know, going to the Southwest and seeing how people developed corn differently and were able to grow right out of the sand, it looks like. But then, you know, you have the BIA comes in and says, no, no, this is how you should be farming, not in this way that you're doing, and develops these systems of reservoirs that don't end up working out. And then it's like, oh, wait, this didn't work out so good. I guess you all should have you know, kept this, the techniques that you had. But then, you know, people have become more reliant on these other um, types of farming that are more water intensive. And now, you know, tribes just fighting to get the rights to that water back. And so there's been all these different series of um, things that have happened through American history that have really made it much more difficult for tribal people to be able to maintain their traditional food systems. And I read um, a couple pages of that paper that you uh, sent over to me, and it mentioned Native American concepts of food sovereignty, and it mentioned uh, political, uh, cultural. Can you kind of explain uh, the cultural side of uh, Native food sovereignty? You know, if you think about the local food movement right now, everybody's sort of getting excited about, you know, the importance of eating food that's local to where you are and supporting your local farmers. And that was something that was important to the indigenous food producers that I talked to. But sort of the extra layer on top of that that you see, especially in Native communities that are working to preserve and reclaim food culture is that traditional foods have this cultural context and meaning that's important to maintain. So it's not just are you getting enough of a certain nutrient, but are you still growing 
these plants that have these stories that are important to your culture. And so a decline in traditional foods has led to language loss in some places, whether that's the names of different plants or whether that's the interactions that people might have had working together in the field that are important to sort of bring back and recover and re-implement. And then, you know, for a lot of nations, the creation story mentions food, you know, and there's important connections to food. So for Haudenosaunee people, you know, corn, beans, and squash come out of the body of Sky Woman's daughter after she buries her. And so there's those connections to, okay, these foods have been here since the beginning, and they're important, and they're connected in these ways to the body of the women who sort of started all of humanity here. So this idea of, you know, food that's not just biological nourishment, that's not just provide you with the necessary components to, you know, for healthy cell turnover, but also that has this sort of spiritual component to it so that people can connect to on this cultural level. Which Native communities are um, really maybe setting an example or doing a good job, uh, you know, reclaiming that food sovereignty? Uh, because you go to a lot of different Native communities. I mean, what are you seeing? What, make, what makes you smile? What makes me smile? Every time I see people putting seeds in the ground, that makes me smile. I mean, I get really excited about, you know, you have some of these projects that are really well established, that have really been setting a beautiful example for people, like Junhinkwa with the Oneida Nation in Wisconsin, you know, they're up to like 10 acres of white corn. So that's something that people are really kind of aspiring to in other communities to be able to produce that quantity of traditional food. Um, the Tanatum Community Action, TOCA in Arizona. So here you have the opposite end of the country, but another organization that's been around for two decades where they're really there encouraging you know, farming and gardening, but also gathering and foraging. And so they have these wonderful camps in the summer where people are going out and harvesting saguaro cactus fruits or, you know, the, the choya buds and these other edibles. And, and so they're incorporating, you know, those foods into their cafe, into their gift shops, um, into school lunches there. And so kind of this wonderful holistic program. Um, and I think working with youth is really important. So it's something that TOCA does or up in Minnesota, the Dream of Wild Health project that's north of the Twin Cities that brings urban Native youth out of the cities up to this farm where they learn everything from you know, planting crops, weeding them, taking care of them, harvesting them, and then how to cook with these foods in their kitchen, but also you know, taking them to the farmer's market and kids are learning how to market and sell these foods and then how to you know, have a, a bank account and, and put that money away that they're earning. So I think especially these programs that are really holistic in that way, they sort of address all these different things that are you know, attached to food and growing. Do you think it's realistic that, uh, you know, a, a tribal community can be completely sovereign in that way, um, feeding their own people, nourishing their own people? Um, are there are there any tribes that are that are doing that? Well, I think it's important to keep in mind is that there was probably never a time when each individual tribe only worked within its own population. Right. People have been trading among each other for eons in, in every part of the world, right? So part of one of the things that the Intertribal Ag Council has done in the last couple of years is this mobile farmer's market that they call 
you know, Dan Cornelius calls um, connecting, reconnecting the tribal trade routes. And so recognizing that tribes always traded among each other and things that, you know, one community might be really good at producing one thing and they would trade, you know, something that they had in abundance to another community for something that they maybe didn't. Um, so, you know, if somebody has access to fish, they're going to catch a lot of those fish and dry those fish and trade them to people that might have buffalo meat or, you know, vegetables or other things. And so I think part of it is not expecting that a tribal community would produce all of its food for all of its tribal members. But food sovereignty is also about to what extent do you have control over where that food comes from that you're willingly trading for, that you are acquiring from other places. And so thinking about that relationship that you have with the food producer, even if that producer is not in your tribal territory. Because when we look now at the you know populations in different tribal nations and you know people are don't might not necessarily live inside their tribal territories and some tribal territories have become much more crowded than they would have been because of reduced land bases. You know, we don't want to say, okay, we'll never be food sovereign unless 100% of the food is produced in this bounded space. But it's about where is the rest of your food coming from? You know, what kind of relationship do you have with the people producing that food and the animals that that food or the you know the, the ground that that food is coming out of? Uh, I forgot to ask about uh, when we were talking about Native American concepts of food sovereignty. I forgot to ask about uh, the political uh, side, the political concept. Uh, where does politics fit in all this? I'm sure it's really important. And essentially, when I was asking people what their definitions of food sovereignty were, it's sort of the, when you look at all the different answers, it comes down to three different levels. So there's an individual level of food sovereignty where it's like, okay, you have a responsibility over what goes in your own mouth. And people recognize that those choices are bounded by what you have access to. But the idea is, okay, there's to some extent you have a choice about what you're eating. And then there's a community level of food sovereignty, right? It's like you need to make sure that other people in the community are getting enough to eat, that the community broadly is self-sufficient. You know, so if you have a lot of one kind of food, to what extent can you trade and share that with other people? But then also thinking about, you know, other ideas around community. So not just the human community that we think of, what about different animal, plant, bird, fish communities as well? And what kind of relationship are we maintaining with those communities? And then the third level is this political level that you're talking about. And so on that level, thinking about how can tribal governments you know, not only make sure that their constituents have enough food to eat, but make sure that they're passing policies that support local food producers and are protecting the habitat that you need to acquire this food and ensuring that people have access to land. So, you know, is the tribe developing the kinds of policies that will make sure that small producers are able to get their foods into tribal programs, into schools, and so that's something that, like, the University of Arkansas, Jamie Hipp's program there is working on, you know, training people in thinking about how do you develop tribal food policy. Um, I think the Muscogee Creek have been working on that as well, kind of developing policies for the tribe to apply. So rather than just wholesale adopting federal policies, many of which are really geared toward large industrial food producers that are very different from smaller tribal food producers, and how can you create more nuanced policies? But then also protecting treaty rights and ensuring that, you know, treaties that were signed with the idea of, okay, we're going to give up 
a certain amount of land, but we're going to make sure that, you know, tribal members in perpetuity have access to food gathering opportunities on that land. How do you remind people year after year of, of that and make sure that that's maintained? So, you know, making sure that the treaty rights that ensure access to traditional foods are maintained. Uh, is there a level of um, maybe achieving food sovereignty on a personal level? And um, what does that look like? So I think that looks like thinking about, and it's going to look different depending where you're from, you know, what are the traditional foods of your relatives and your ancestors, and what do you still have access to? Um, but thinking about what can you grow and gather locally from where you are, what can you purchase or trade with people who might be gathering or growing or hunting or fishing. Um, so thinking about how do you make sure that what you're putting into your mouth to the best of your ability, and that's you know different for everybody. I'm not trying to judge people who, you know, might be working many jobs and just, you know, have a hard time finding the time to, you know, produce some of their own food or be able to process their own food, but thinking about how can you dedicate as much of that time as you are able to preparing that kind of food and making sure that's what goes into your body and keeps you healthy and supports the, the local food producers around you. So what kinds of uh, th foods do you eat and what kinds of things are you making in your kitchen? Um, I just had a big bowl of wild rice. So uh, from Bruce Savage's farm there in uh in, in Minnesota, Spirit Lake Farm. So that's somebody once in a while, I have him send me a big old flat rate box of rice and I eat that up. Um, what else do I have in my kitchen here? I've got some smoked fish that I got from one of my students from Alaska. Um, I have a lot of beans that, you know, Haudenosaunee beans are so beautiful. And so I grew a lot of these um, kind of relatives of scarlet runner beans, different kinds. And so those are delicious boiled up. Um, I've got a lot of white corn from Junhinkwa that I make soups out of, and I put that in chilies and all kinds of dishes, so that's another good hearty thing that kind of sticks to your ribs. Um, so lots of different things that I brought back from my adventures. I picked up a lot of you know, choya buds and tepary beans from the Toka store, and I cook those up periodically because they're delicious. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of tasty foods like that. I've got some winter squashes here that I squirreled away, but we had a, a small community garden plot on campus that the, the native students and I planted in the spring. And so we got some winter squashes out of that and some beans. And some one of the students was from the Cherokee Nation and we planted some Cherokee corn that we're going to cook up. So it was a, a tiny little plot. It was more kind of symbolic than actually producing a significant amount of food. But it was a way for people to you know, get their hands in the dirt and to be able to see some of the interesting variety of vegetables that were outside of the usual, you know, tomatoes and peppers that other people were planting. Do you see uh, maybe a rise in these tiny little plots, these little uh, community gardens that um, I'm, I'm hearing more about from different tribes? Um, I'll look on a tribe's website and they'll have a tab for the community garden or something about seeds. Um, is this uh, maybe like a growing movement for tribes and individuals to get involved that way with their food? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, at one point people talk about how, you know, everybody thinks about how their grandma had this huge garden and maybe your parents had a huge garden. And I see more and more people who 
themselves just either don't have time for a huge garden, they don't have access to the land for a huge garden, and so are now turning to these little garden plots as a way of you know, still maintaining that connection to their, their relatives and what the, the type of gardening that they had done, or a way to still be able to maintain and save some of your seeds, even if you don't have a big old plot of land like your relatives might have. And so I think more and more this is becoming a way for people to to maintain that connection, have some fresh tomatoes on top of it all, um, kind of on this small, accessible scale. And uh, you said you you had a garden, or was it just the one at the uh, college? When I was growing up, we had a huge garden. You know, my, my mom and dad were really into gardening. Um, and then I, I lived in Akwesasne for a while and worked with a group called Ganahio Yungwaya Dohage that's working on getting people back into farming and gardening. And so I worked in that garden and I still go up every year and try to help out there, pull some weeds and, you know, harvest some beans and corn and um, you know, help that group out that's still trying to keep that garden going. And they're involving more and more youth in that garden. So they're working with the Oholobum Rites of Passage group. So Kenny Perkins up there has been working really hard trying to you know, get the youth in the garden more and more as a way of interesting that next generation in you know, learning about their culture and learning about food at the same time and, and how to you know, stay healthy and learning the language in the context. Because I think I see more and more communities working like that. So when I was out visiting with George Toya out in Nambe Pueblo, you know, they had these great little signs up around the garden. Um, same for the, the Wajupi farm up to Shakopee, you know, all these great little signs in their, their language so that the kids could um, think about language as they're gardening and see that in context. So I think that's something that communities are doing more and more. And it's one thing to sit in a classroom and learn language while you're trying to you know, study a paper or study a computer program. But if you can be out in the garden and, you know, doing this sort of repetitive motion, um, that was something the, the Yuchi language project that collaborates with the Muskogee Food Sovereignty Initiative, that's one thing that they were describing to me was, you know, gardening is a great way to learn language because you're sort of doing what you're saying, and there's a lot of this repetitive motion, so you can be practicing it over and over. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I ask everybody this question uh, so far on Toasted Sister, um, but what do you think the future looks like? Um, because right now uh, we're seeing lots of movements within uh, native food and um, agriculture and, you know, down to the little gardens we have in our backyards and on our patios. Um, and, and it's exciting right now to be uh, involved in native food and looking at native cuisine. What do you think the future is like maybe for uh, food sovereignty? Well, the future could be many different things. I mean, people are thinking about this now and they're aware of this. And part of it is, you know, this fight to preserve the environment, to preserve water. So if you think about, you know, all the different fights that are happening against pipelines right now, that's related to food sovereignty. Thinking about you can't have um, you know, healthy food if you don't have clean water to water that food with, or in the case of, you know, Minnesota, the concerns about how the rice beds there could be contaminated and how are you food sovereign if you're a community that relies on wild rice and now you have oil in your water, you know, contaminating your rice. So Ami the Earth has been doing a lot of work there. You know, the folks that have been out at Standing Rock trying to protect the water there, the people who had been fighting the Keystone Pipeline, and that's a fight that's coming back up again. You know, there's one in Louisiana 
So, you know, if you have contaminated water, it's very hard to be food sovereign. And so that's a fight that people are really picking up. Um, I see more and more people are becoming interested in heritage seeds. And so there's, you know, amazing work being done. There's a seed wet network in the Midwest, um, or the, the Great Lakes area, that like the White Earth Land Recovery Project and the, the Shakopee folks and Dream of Wild Health have all been collaborating on that. Um, Rowan White has been going around giving these amazing seed workshops to different tribal communities that are interested in thinking about how do you preserve the seeds that people have? How do you make sure that they're getting out into other communities? You know, there's been Haudenosaunee gatherings of all these different communities coming together to say, okay, what seeds do we have a lot of? What seeds do we not have as much of? How can we divide those up? So it's the types of meetings that they've been hosting out there as well. Um, like at Tsuki Pueblo, they have this beautiful seed vault, kind of. It's this adobe building um, that you know, they've stored all these different kinds of seeds there. So I think people are becoming more interested in preserving you know, indigenous seeds specifically and thinking about how to protect those seeds and make sure there's more and more of them that people can be planting. And so I think that's something that will increase. And I think you're going to start to see more and more of these gardens as people are interested in, in making sure that they have access to you know, healthy, fresh food as much as possible. And I see more of these camps popping up, you know, so it's my focus is especially on gardening, but there's also people who are you know, trying to preserve fishing and hunting and some of these other things. And, you know, people trying to figure out what's going to happen with climate change. And so that's going to be something that impacts food sovereignty, that if all of your you know, plant and animal relatives are heading north because it's getting hotter and hotter, you know, what does that mean when tribal land is not shifting north at the same time? And so I think those are things that tribes are, are starting to think about and people are starting to you know, figure out how is that adjustment going to be made. So I think it's hard to predict where things are going. There's a lot of change in the air and change that's happening, but I have faith that people are going to keep persevering and keep on top of these issues. I did talk to uh, Rowan in the previous episode, and we talked about uh, seeds, and uh, that mm-hmm. seems to be the beginning of uh, food sovereignty. Uh, what What do you think is the, uh, you know, maybe step one to food sovereignty? Is it seeds or is it water? Or which Which do you think should come first? Should we focus on? That I think first? it's a circle. I don't think that there is. I don't think it's a linear thing. So I think the people who are saving. The seeds and protecting the water are as important as the chefs who are there, you know, making sure that people want to eat this food and know how to cook this food. Um, so it's a circle. I don't know that there's, and I think it has to, you know, the movement has to be happening at all places at once. You know, you need the clean water, you need the, you know, the heritage plants and animals and varieties, and you need the chefs who are there, um, you know, everybody from the grandmas to the professional people in professional kitchens who are working to really highlight the beauty and importance and deliciousness of native foods. And so I think these things have to be happening all at the same time. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're working, are you working on a book? I thought I, I saw maybe on Facebook that you were finishing some, some chapters or something like that. Are you working on a book? So that was a different book. Yeah. So oh. I just finished a book. Um, I'm, I'm working on a lot of books. But, yeah, no, I finished one that's coming out in November, University of Minnesota Press, called The River is in Us, Fighting Toxics in a Mohawk Community. And so that's about um, Akwesasne and the sort of struggle there 
around a Superfund site and how that's impacted people's health, but also the food culture and what happens when your food culture is impacted by concerns around contamination. You know, what has some of the health impacts of that been as well? And then the ways that the community there is working to reclaim that and repair that relationship. Um, and then the second book that I'm kind of just getting started on, From Garden Warriors to Good Seeds, Indigenizing the Local Food Movement, is more about, you know, all of these other things that we've been talking about. So all the different farming and gardening projects that I've visited over the last couple of years and done these interviews with folks about, you know, what is food sovereignty? What are heritage seeds? What are some of the successes and challenges that they've faced as part of developing these kind of projects and maintaining and reclaiming their food cultures. That was Dr. Elizabeth Hoover, Manning Assistant Professor of American and Ethnic Studies at Brown University. Check out her blog. It's called From Good Warriors to Good Seeds, Indigenizing the Local Food Movement. Toasted Sister was created by me, Andy Murphy, and the music was created for Toasted Sister by C.W. Ione. Check out his music at cwayon.com. This is the sixth episode of Toasted Sister, and you can check out the other episodes at ToastedSisterPodcast.com and on SoundCloud. If you really like Toasted Sister, please rate and review the show on iTunes. It really helps get the word out. If you have feedback for me or suggestions for future interviews, send me a message through the ToastedSisterPodcast.com website or through the Facebook page.